Hello and welcome to the Man Catholic Podcast. My name is Steve Priest. I'm Thomas Wurtz. And I'm Brock Martin. We are your hosts, and today's topic is Bigger, Faster, Stronger, The Difference Between Men and Women. This time. Welcome to the podcast. Today we are going after the question, why do men have testicles? It's a great question, Steve. It's a very important question to actually sit back and seriously consider. And I want to take us to January 8th, 1894. And on that day, Raymond Colby was born in Poland. And Raymond grew up kind of a rambunctious kid. Uh, imagine that. And one of the days his mother kind of got frustrated him and said, Raymond, what will become of you? And sent him to his room. And so he goes up to his room kind of asking himself that question, what will become of me? And in a very serious way, as a young child rarely does. And lo and behold, who comes to help him with that answer? The Virgin Mary. The Virgin Mary appears to him and offers him two crowns. One crown is a crown of purity, and one crown is of martyrdom, and asks which one he would like to, again, help him address this question, what will become of me? And Raymond Colby, again, as just a young boy, looks up and responds to her, both. I want both. Well, he went on in 1918, was ordained a Franciscan priest, And in the early 1930s, he went on mission. He had this very zealous missionary heart. I want to reach souls for Christ. I want to help bring them to come to know him. And he traveled to Asia and India and later in life, even to Japan. But 1933, he came back to Poland. And in the the most advanced media of the day, the newspaper and radio station, and he even utilized the printing press to start printing flyers and and sent these all around the world, again, just really reaching out and preaching the gospel, the love of Jesus. It's amazing. Most of us don't want to cross the street. Yeah. And, and yeah, <laughs> we, don't want to, we don't want to take our faith outside of our church or maybe, you know, our home. Much less, yeah, across the street to our neighbors or anyone else. And here he is uh, in the early 1930s utilizing modern media. And, you know, a lot of times, Thomas, we don't want to even utilize media. We see a lot of media being bad and, and, you know, tempting or loud, annoying. And I know I've caught myself sometimes just saying, you know what? Heck with that. I'm done with, you know, media, whatever it be, social media or TV or movies or music. And he really embraced media at the time to say, you know what? I want to leverage this uh, to help the cause. So here we go. Uh, Late in 39 or 19, actually 1941, he was arrested. So World War II is, is really breaking out. And he was arrested on February 17th, 1941. And in May, late May, he was taken to Auschwitz. Now, a lot of people don't know the first part of that story, that he is this missionary priest. And a lot of people, if you've heard of Maximilian Kolbe, you've probably heard this part of the story. And I want to just kind of slow down and take you into it a little bit. But I wanted to build upon that foundation of who this man was and his heart, that it was already set on fire, that he didn't just find himself in the moment that I'm going to share right now, but he had been building this foundation day in and day out that prepared him for his time in Auschwitz. Yeah, the encounter with Our Lady when he's a child 
And he just, I, hey, how do I get Our Lady to appear to my kids and say something <laughs> to them? But B, like, to the fact that he said, I want both. It's like yeah. very St. Theresean. Like, I yeah. choose all kind of thing. And mm-hmm. the, obviously, God's grace destined him for amazing things. Yep. So May 28th, he goes into Auschwitz. Now, uh, many of us are familiar with this uh, brutal camp of Auschwitz in Poland um, where millions were killed. And I think millions, I, I, I certainly know lots. over a million were killed. I don't know if it was in the multiple millions. Lots and lots of people were sent there to their death. And upon entering Auschwitz, just like one of the, of the many other prisoners, was just subject to abuse of all forms, physical, mental. Um, and it was in his faith as a priest that he continued to stay strong. But it all came down to one series of events. And it started with one of the inmates escaping prison an inmate that maximum colby now uh didn't didn't know he didn't know who this inmate was and he escaped and to set a precedent the guards decide you know what we're gonna take 10 random prisoners and we're gonna kill them in front of everyone else to say this is what happens when someone tries to escape so out of the hundreds of prisoners that are there they pulled out 10 random ones and it wasn't going to be a, a quick death. They weren't just going to shoot him right there on the spot. They said, we're going to make this terrible. Uh, imagine that. You're already in Auschwitz, and we're going to make this terrible. And they said, we're going to put you in starvation bunkers. You're already starving, right? They're down to skin and bones. They're, they're uh, sick. And now they're, they're going to be starved to death. I, yeah, I think that just points to the fact of the evil was all over this place. Like mm-hmm. this, they were really good at torturing, punishing, making people suffer. There's a sense of just the Nazis were evil. Yep. And this this Auschwitz was encompassed with just this evil presence that was just a tragedy of history. Totally. And they were, again, they went beyond treating them as humans. It was completely inhumane. Yeah, fire, fired and fueled by this evil. So they pick out 10 guys, they line them up, and one of them Franciszek Gajognicek is how you say it. I've been practicing that for a while, Thomas. Franciszek Gajognicek. He started to proclaim, no, my wife, my children, I've, I've got a wife, I've got children, and started crying. And from the back of the prisoners, slowly walks out of line, which you don't do, right? You, this, this frail man approached the guards. Again, which if, if anyone did that before, they would have been shot immediately. But he wasn't shot. So already the guards must have known him. Mm. They must have known who he was in some way that they didn't just shoot him. But he walks out of line from the back through the prisoners and steps toe to toe, eye to eye, man to man with this guard, the one who's leading the charge. And witnesses say that he actually trembled, the guard trembled in the presence of St. Maximilian Colby. And again, he didn't know who he was. And he said, what are you doing? What do you want? And he said, I want to take this man's place. Knowing that the guard had a choice. He could have said, no, you know what? We're going to go from 10 to 11 now. Mm-hmm. You're an idiot. But the guard stood back and said, why? So that's point number two. They didn't shoot him. Mm-hmm. And now he entered into dialogue. Like, who is this guy? This doesn't happen. And he said, why? And Maximum Colby said, I'm a Catholic priest. Which is saying two things. One, that's his identity as a man, is I'm a Catholic priest. And two, he knew that the guard would see importance in that. 
and want to kill him. What happened next was incredible. The guard actually took Maximilian up on his offer and switched places. Maximilian Kolbe was now one of the 10 and Franciszek was set free, at least for the moment, and became yet again a prisoner at Auschwitz. And they led these 10 prisoners into this bunker, this starvation bunker, and for days they didn't hear yelling and screaming and cursing, they heard praising and singing. And every time that a guard went in to the starvation bunker to pull out one of the dead bodies, they always saw Father Maximilian Kolbe on his knees in prayer. And it was through his faith in that moment that continued those 10 to have faith as well. And that they didn't die in vain, those ten, those nine besides Maximum Coley, but they were they died martyrs as well. Martyrs of love. Which John Paul II later described Maximilian Colby as a martyr of love. St. Maximilian Colby was the last one to survive. All nine passed before him. And to complete the process, the guards came in because he wasn't dying he of starvation. Die. He no. wouldn't die. They came in and they injected his arm, which he held up freely to the guards, Thomas. And they injected him with carbolic acid to kill him. And he was killed on August 14th, the eve of the Assumption, the Feast of our Assum- of the Assumption of Mary. And he was cre- cremated on August 15th. The Which is day. amazing because Our Lady appeared to him, appeared right? So he had a devout relationship yep. with Our Lady. So the eve of I mean, and the feast. Yeah, and they weren't planning that. The guards right. certainly they, didn't they care about that. They were not on the uh, Laudate app calendar, right? Yep. And uh, of all of the prisoners killed in Auschwitz, I believe he's the only one to have been given a wooden casket. They put his body in a wooden casket and carried the casket to the incinerator, and he was cremated on August 15th. I mean, crazy powerful. But the story doesn't stop there. You see, Franciszek Gajognicek was released. He was freed and became a missionary himself. His heart was set aflame by Maximilian Kolbe's sacrifice, by his self-offering, by his witness of love, that he became a missionary. And I believe he was either at the beatification or the canonization of Maximilian Kolbe. And Maximilian Kolbe was canonized on October 10th, 1982 by John Paul II. And this story is so powerful in so many ways. Thomas, I love it because it's it's relatively modern, right? Like this mm-hmm. happened in our parents' lifetime, right, right? right, Or maybe our grandparents' lifetime. So it's very recent that this happened. And two, it's it's tangible. I can I can grab on to so many different parts of his life, of his story, of his evangelization efforts with pamphlets, with traveling to countries, uh, with you know, really going after the the daily kind of temptations of of the men in his life, which were the Freemasons. That was specifically the men he was going after. I want to go after the Freemasons to show them who Jesus was. And then this sacrifice that he did, Thomas, I don't believe was on a whim. I think it was the day-to-day struggles and sacrifices that he went through that really prepared him for that so that he could make that sacrifice. Yeah, countless stories in Auschwitz before this day yep. where he's offering up his food, he's offering up his his time, he's giving people a sense of hope the entire time they're captured. Yep, which set him up to be able to do this. 
And then Franciszek goes on to become a missionary as well. I mean, what a beautiful story. So we've named our son uh, Colbe after uh, St. Francis, sorry, excuse me, can't talk all of a sudden, St. Maximin Colby, um, just as a, a witness of love. And John Paul II said he died a martyr of love, fulfilling that crown that Mary gave him a martyr of love. So he didn't necessarily die because he was a Catholic priest. That was part of the story, but he died out of love for this other uh, prisoner, Franciszek. So just incredible story to start us off. And, you know, some people would look at that story and look at St. Maximilian Colby and say, that was a man's man. They would say that. And I think that's appropriate to say, I mean, it's spectacular, his life. And then you look at how he ended it. Yeah. I mean, unreal. And it's fitting that you named your child. Yep. Maximilian well, we Colby, wanted to it's... look at an example of what true masculinity was. And as, as I said in the story, it's something that we could wrap our arms around that story. It's relevant. It's, it's mm-hmm. here. It's now. Mm-hmm. And this dude was a man's man. And that's, I mm-hmm. mean, that's what we want our children, our sons to grow up to be, yep. right? Yep. And then you can highlight uh, many different facets along the way of his story. And I, I love and I want just everyone to have a visual of that moment when Maximilian Colby comes out of the line at the prison when they're trying to find 10 men to kill, and he walks straight up to the face of the evil Nazi commander and steps in front and says, take me instead. And like you said, Steve, the eyewitnesses Mm -hmm. mentioned how the commander was taken aback, which you wouldn't expect from an evil, wicked man that he was. In that moment, a lot of us would think, gosh, he's got backbone, he's courageous. Colloquially, we would say a little more crass, that, that concept of he's got balls. And I think there's a uniqueness to that phrase that, you know, he's got balls because it points to a truth right mm-hmm. our culture and our vulgarity sometimes can say things that reflect a deep and true reality and it reminds me of a of a story if i can build on another story if you yeah. guys don't mind one point a few years back my daughter had been put to bed my oldest and my wife comes in and says thomas uh, our daughter cecilia she's pretty sure she heard someone tapping at the bedroom window i don't know if you guys have had those moments but Two things go through my mind. One, no way. And heck, that's, that's true. And the other is, what am I going to do when I see the guy's face? Just if like it is true, every what scenario, am I going right? to do? Yeah. So prudentially, I go and I open the, I open the blinds and, and hopefully look face to face at someone trying to get in my, my house. I don't know what I would do if he was standing there looking at me. But right. I look. I don't see anything. My daughter's convinced. So I say, okay, I'll go outside and look. And I go outside get my shoes on, get the stuff that I need to protect myself and, and go outside and look through our whole yard, right? And later on that night, my wife relayed a story, relayed an incident, I should say, that after I had left, Cecilia looks at her and she says, dads are brave. And I love that because it's this idea, this man's man concept. You look at Maximilian Colby, this boldness, right? This idea of backbone, this idea of he had balls. Like there's something in us that is, that is just different. We're bigger, faster, sugar. I didn't send my daughter to go look outside totally. at night. I didn't send my wife to go look outside. I went. Mm-hmm. And there's something in that. And it's just, why do we say when we see acts of courage, either from a man or a woman, that again, that idea like he's got, he's got big balls or he's got this backbone. This, but again, we're, we're pointing to this concept of a man's physical makeup, how God made us. So why did God make us that way? And why did he make us to be the ones that are going to go out and look in the, in the middle of the night in our yard for the guy tapping on our window. There wasn't anyone there, by the way. There was nothing That's there. Good. It was, I don't know what it was, but I'm grateful no one was there. But why, why did God make us that way? And I think there's a beautiful incident in Scripture back at the beginning in Genesis. When God had made Adam, he gave him a tour. In, in chapter 2, he gave him a tour of the Garden of Eden. And it says that the Lord just asked Adam to till and keep the garden. 
And it's very interesting, Till and Keep. And I don't know what you guys first thought when you heard that back in the day or when you matured as a man, you started reading scripture again. You're like, what does it mean to till and keep the garden? He's farming, he's weeding, he's, right. he's keep, what is he keeping? It's paradise. And we find out a chapter later that there was something that needed to be protected. The garden needed to be kept from something. He needed to protect the garden, right? The serpent comes in. And when you look at the Hebrew word for keep, the Hebrew word is shamar. And a better translation, I think, when you look at the context of Genesis 2, 15 and Genesis 3, and that scholars have also supported, is a translation that means to guard or to keep. And so when you read Genesis 2, 15, again, you say that God asked Adam after he, sh- after he gave him a tour of paradise, and he said, till and guard protect this. That makes so much more sense because then we know that God must have let Adam in on the inside that there's something out there that wants to destroy you. I don't think God was sitting up in heaven with, with a bowl of popcorn just waiting to see what happens in chapter 3 when Adam's surprised that the serpent's coming to destroy him, right, and to, to deceive them. So I think God was pointing to something that you're meant to guard and protect as a man, truth, beauty, goodness, and all of us have that in us, in our soul. That's why God made us bigger faster, stronger, right? Our, our testicles do something different, right? God made right. us differently because of testosterone, all these things. No, and I think I love, <clears throat> I love this point because it is so clearly inscribed on each of our hearts as men, right? Mm-hmm. We can all think back to times when we were kids when th- the deepest desire of your heart is to be a hero. You know, I think whether it's, whether it's an athletic field or a, a musical performance or something intellectually, we can think back to that experience of wanting the men that we look up to, to look at us and say, you've got what it takes. We're going to put the ball in your hand, or we're going to ask you to perform the solo. And there's something that's so, that's so amazing when you actually read this in scripture to be able to understand that, that this isn't just a a cool thought. This is actually something that the Mm -hmm. Lord is showing us that's written on each one of our hearts. I desire to be a hero. I Mm -hmm. desire to be relied upon and to be confident that I can step in, in those moments and deliver what needs to be delivered. Even in our sons, right? My son's 11, and for the past five years, he's been running around the house with a sword, conquering some unknown mm-hmm. enemy because he wants to be the hero. Thomas, I had one of those stories as well where years ago, I'm laying in bed with Allie, my wife, and, and we're just starting to fall asleep, and we hear the garage door open. And I yell. She reminded me of this later. I don't remember yelling it. <laughs> this is it. And she goes, this is what? <laughs> and I was like, duh, the moment we've been dreaming of, you know, like, what do you mean? And so uh, I ended up looking around the house, you know, with my uh, weapon of choice and no one was there. And I went outside and the garage door was closed. And I thought he flanked me. He's inside. <laughs> <He's> inside. <laughs> and so I went back inside and I felt like Rambo. And a, and a, a knight conquering a castle, I oh, felt yeah. like the hero to my family. Lo and behold, no one was there either. Thomas, a neighbor had come and shut my garage door without thank telling you, me. Yes, yeah. thank you. Next time, just a friendly text would be great, so you don't get <laughs> shot. Uh, but you're you're spot on, Brock. That it is written in our hearts that my son can run around with a sword, conquering unknown enemies, and I out of my being yell, this is it. Right. This is the moment we've been dreaming of. I mean, as, as sons of Adam and sons of the father, right, we, we have an element of duty to guard and protect, to, to care for what our father has, has given us. Mm-hmm. 
right? Even on the natural level, right? You're, you're a son of a dad. You're the one that takes care of the farm after he's gone, right? So there's right. an element that, that is clear. It makes sense, again, with this concept of Shamar of guarding, protecting, that Adam is caring for the creation that his father has given him to care for. And he made him bigger and stronger. Again, the testosterone is in our body to actually make our body grow bigger and our bone density is more intense, which is, you know, I, my world is college athletics. And so this idea of transgender is just just getting under my skin, right? This idea that a guy can can compete in a girl's sport with girls. And you're just like, he was built bigger. I don't care what he's doing now. Testosterone has shaped him differently. And again, going back to why did God make us that way? So that we could lay our life down in the defense of what is true, good, and beautiful as sons, and we're all part of that line, right? God has given each of us as men that same calling to Shamar. And we look around at this culture, and it's a mess, right? And I think a lot of that is because men have not stood out, stepped up, whatever the right verbiage is on that. They have not done what they need to do to guard and protect and speak out and, and protect their families, their souls in the culture. And I think one of the beautiful things, Thomas, that that this idea of Shamar really leads into is we, we I think we can all resonate with that big moment of I'm going to protect my family or I'm going to die for the faith or I'm, you know, I'm going to endure great trials and tribulations for the sake of something greater than myself, with, whether it's a country or, or a religion. But I, I had a spiritual director one time who, you know, I was sharing with him some thoughts and prayer of like, man, I would just love it if I wouldn't love this. But what I was praying through and thinking through was, you know, what if somebody broke in, into the doors of the church and they had a gun? And immediately in my mind, I'm the guy that's like climbing over the pews, getting ready to lay one on this guy. I've had that dream a number of times. Yeah, exactly. I'm sure most (laughs) most men have. And I I vividly remember an old friend and spiritual director of mine, Brother Levin Harton, uh, he said, that is so beautiful that you'd be willing to die for the Lord. What he's pointing you to, to, though, is for you to go live with him and live for him. And that same desire that we have to be a hero in the grand stage mm-hmm. is, is a calling to be that type of hero in, in the day in and the day out, the things that other people don't see. And that's, that's really where our call is meant to, to really go and, and have dominion and to take care of this world is for us to, to really give that, that gift of ourselves to those that are around us. You're spot on, Brock. I mean, it, few of us will have the opportunity to be that incredible hero and to die as a martyr in public square right or to actually protect Mm -hmm. our house uh, and our family but we do have daily moments and i think what you just said is a great reminder to bring us back to uh, kind of back to the surface no totally i think i think at the end of the day what does this mean? What does the idea of Shamar mean? And it is to grow in the virtues. It is to let the Lord's call for us to be heroes and to be the men that we are called to be really permeate every, every facet mm-hmm. of our life. And mm-hmm. I think, you know, it'll be, it'll be fun to be able to dive into three areas that we think that that might make sense for us today. Yeah. We want to take it practical and, and leave everyone with something to, to really take away. And before we get to those three, there's one that's, that rises above the rest, mm-hmm. and we might bring this up even regularly, but it's a call to daily prayer, consistent prayer, because I'm committed, and I think you guys are too, that 10 minutes of daily intentional prayer is better than an hour twice a week totally. of, of prayer, that the Lord is calling us to be consistent, and it's like any relationship, right? So any any guys out there who are married, engaged, or dating a girl— you wouldn't just check in twice a week with her. You just simply wouldn't. Or if you would, she would break up with you. So, yeah, some probably do. But. <laughs> Here's a call out to that. Don't do that. 
you check in daily. I mean, you just do. And so this is an invitation to really consider and to not consider whether or not you should, but consider how to jump into that consistent prayer life. So here's the first practical one, and we're going to start super simple. And it's just to get out and get active, to exercise, to use the strength that the Lord has given us. We have been built bigger, faster, stronger. Use our bodies. Go lift weights. Go run. Go on hikes. Go play sports however you want to exercise and to use that body that God gave you um, in whatever way you're able, go do that. Yeah, hopefully you won't fit in skinny jeans. (laughs) (laughs) I hate skinny jeans. (laughs) I think the second thing that comes to mind is just the reality of the importance of proclaiming the gospel in the public square. You know, thinking about this, there you, you guys have probably heard this line before that's commonly attributed to St. Francis of Assisi, the preach the gospel at all times and when necessary use words. But the reality is I don't I don't think he ever said that. And the and the, the leaders that I talk to, there's no documentation of him ever saying that. And I think a lot of times as men, we can use that as a cop out to not proclaim the gospel in the public square. Um, you know, I don't, I'm not necessarily advocating that people get up on the corners and, and, you know, yell at the crowds with shaking your Bible, but things that are as small as inviting other people into prayer, having a spiritual conversation with somebody next to you on an airplane, not being afraid to make the sign of the cross, uh, when you're around coworkers who may not know that you're Catholic or when, if you're in a, you know, a charged situation to still be willing to wear your faith on your sleeve so that, that others, if they were watching a preview of your life, would be able to tell this man, this man's a follower of Christ. This man's a Christian. Yeah, I think it, it doesn't take the majority to change the culture, but it does take Christian men to stand up and speak out against the, all the things that are, that are attacking human dignity, right? It's just pro-life stuff. Like we have so many opportunities to speak out and if, if even a, a loud minority starts to rise up of us Christian men, we can change the culture. Totally. And I think the, the, the third point is that idea of, of kind of guarding and protecting our personal sphere of influence. Mm-hmm. If, we're, if, we're a fam- if we have a family, our family, children, wife, but it, definitely our, our soul, the, our friends, and, you know, and, and kind of guarding against the world, the flesh, the devil, and trying to look for ways that we allow those three negative influences to have mm. control, right? For example, let's just give an example. Uh, a father that, that looks at pornography in his home really opens his home up to a spiritual mm. spiritual warfare in a negative way, right? The demons will come and, and be present in that house. That's one example of how when we don't do that, how we can shamar for our family mm-hmm. is one thing. So just what do we allow our kids to consume, mm-hmm. right? What do we consume? Yep. All these things, I think, is just beautiful ways that we can shamar. We could have a whole our discussion, which we won't right now on all the different ways we could, we could guard and protect our personal life and our sphere of influence, but we need to be contemplating how we can do this. And that's a point that reminds us that these struggles, these battles are not just about ourselves, that they include our families, they include our friends and and that sphere around us. That's a great point. Thanks. All right. That is it for man Catholic today. Look forward to seeing you next time. God bless. (laughs) 